Hello and welcome to Switzer Investing. I'm Peter Switzer. If you think I look a little summery, well, I am, as I'm zooming in from Port Douglas today, where it's a wonderful 28 degrees, real swimming weather. But I digress. On tonight's show, we have Fairmont Equities' Mike Gable looking at four stocks that have taken off from their lows recently. That's Altium, Appen, Atrium Milk, and Newark. He also looks at the stock he likes right now, namely Woodside Petroleum. Then Marcus Bogdan, who is the portfolio manager of my listed Switzer Dividend Growth Fund, tells us how he picks good companies and what is the latest addition to the Swiss fund. Joining us next is Simon Presley of Propertyology, who tells us why granny flats might be good for income, but aren't great for capital gain. Something you should consider if you're thinking about buying a property with a granny flat. And finally, Ying Yi and Chen does her regular catch up at what's the outlook for interest rates. So without any further ado, let's go to Mike Gable. Well, to kick off, we're talking to Mike Gable, founder of Fairmont Equities, about a number of stocks that I've written about and talked about on the program, and they seem to have taken off in recent weeks. I just want to see whether we can trust this takeoff, and Mike's the right guy to talk about. Mike, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Peter. Let's not muck around, because I'm in Port Douglas, so I have to make sure we don't uh, have a Zoom problem. Let's kick off with uh, the first stock uh, on the list, namely Newix. Mm. A lot of problems in the news. What are the charts saying? Yeah, look, I mean, we, we have looked at all these stocks previously. Um, last time um, we spoke about Newix, I, I mentioned how I noticed that it seemed to respect a 20-day moving average. So by that, I mean um, that the share price tends to either sit on top of this moving average when it's doing well, um, or when it's not doing well, it tends to follow it underneath. So... Um, at the time we spoke about, if it gets above that moving average, that would be a sign that it's ready to kick on. Unfortunately, even though it's had the odd sort of good day there, it's still uh, trading under that 20-day that moving average. So for me, it's still a little bit too early. Um, obviously, it's been in the news. You know, hopefully we're getting to a point, um, if, if you are a shareholder, where all the bad news is out there and it's all, it's all priced in. But for me, it's still just a little bit too early. Still for the courageous, Mark, eh? Yeah. Let's go to Altium. It's had a nice rise and sort of had a takeover offer as well. Mm. Yeah, so look, Altium, obviously, um, big move up there. So the offer is trading at 38.50. Um, what, I've, what I've put on the, on the chart for our viewers is I've thrown a little blue arrow up at 38.50 so they could see where that offer is. Um, at the moment, this one I, I think is pretty clear. You've got a you, you've got an offer that's that's higher than where the shares are trading. They did trade close to it on the first day, and they've drifted back. So that's clearly a sign that you know maybe the market doesn't quite believe um, that this might go through. Um, you know because it was a nice premium to the the previously traded price. I know the company has said that that um, they'd like to to see something higher than that. Um, but at the moment, it looks like the market's not buying it. So the question is, well, do you look at a share price trading around $34 and say, okay, well, if it goes through, I'm going to make at least four bucks on it. Um, I prefer to look at the, uh, the risk first, and that's if it doesn't go through um, and the share price heads back to where it was previously, um, which is closer to $27. So 
Um, I guess if we continue to see this share price drift back closer to that $27 where the risk reward looks a little bit more attractive, then it could be an opportunity. Um, again, at the moment, it looks a little bit too early to be jumping in. Okay, mate. Let's go to the next one now, and that is Appen. Yep. Um, yeah, there's been a couple of uh, really nice up days on Appen, um, but I suppose when you look at the share price performance over a year, it, it's merely just a blip in terms of, of the big downtrend that we've seen in it. Um, in our last show, Peter, I mentioned that there was previously a lot of support around $16, and if it can get its head back above that, um, then I'd feel more confident uh, in Appen. Um, at the moment, it's still drifting under that. So on a positive note, it's not, it's not getting any worse, but I just think it'll base build for a while. Uh, obviously, when we, you know, with our market, uh, trends seem to, to change every couple of days in terms of are we back into growth stocks or not. Um, I just think this one needs to use a bit more time. So we could be patient with Appen. Um, and as, as I said, if I could see it get through $16, um, because I think there'll be a lot of selling anywhere near there, if can get through that, that's, that'd be a great sign. That'd be a good start. In many ways, all of these stocks, I've jumped in early because I'm, I'm sure lots of people are asking the same question as me. Yeah, is it time to get in? And I, I half suspect that I'd be getting cautious type answers from you because you are a cautious kind of guy. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, it always comes back to your timeframes and all that as well. I mean, I, I, I like stuff that's, that's already got the uptrend to it. Yeah. Maybe, yeah. Maybe I'm impatient as a young guy, but I'd like to, uh, I'd like to um, see that uptrend. But, um, you know, as a positive note, what we saw with, with Altium, um, you know, there is still really good interest in that sector. So I guess it's just a matter of time. Yeah, it was interesting. I, I know I, I noted that uh, a US analyst, I think it was an RBC analyst, actually made the point that he thought Autodesk, the company that actually made the offer mm. for um, Altium, he liked it on the basis that they would get this Altium deal across the line. So that that intrigued me, but once again, it's all speculation. It, it could yeah. be totally wrong. The deal might not come off, but it's just an interesting one to uh, keep an eye on. Mike, let's go to the final one before we get your favourite one uh, for, for this week, and that is A2 Milk. Real mm. has a, a real um, battle with the market, starting to take off now, but once again, I suspect you're going to say it's too early. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Look, it is, but... But again, I mean, when you have a look at a one-year chart, it looks like it hasn't done anything. But you know, if you got in a few weeks ago, you've you've seen some nice nice moves. Um, I still think this will be volatile for a while, so it might take another few more months. Hopefully, we could see a bit more of a base build in that, um, and you know, all the sellers are out of the way and all the negative press is out of the way. Um, so for me, it's you know, if I'm just talking about a chart. It's still a downtrending chart. Um, it's not uptrending yet. Um, yeah, so still just a, a little bit too early, Peter. Okay, so all four really are for the brave and probably the, the, the most scared of the brave would probably look at Altium before the other, the other three. Yeah, exactly. Okay, mate, let's go to your more safe and <laughs> interesting. Well, I'm, I'm presuming this is going to be a buy, but you can always come with the sell. Oh, look, I mean, we want to buy things. So I've, I've got another buy, which is Woodside. But what I, what I thought I'd do is um, just follow you up on something you asked me 
last week, Peter, and that's um, with these buys that I'm putting at the end of these little segments, uh, you wanted me to make sure that I updated your viewers as to um, my latest view. So I, I went back and had a look at my stocks for since the start of the year. Hopefully I haven't missed any. Um, so we had West Farmers last week, uh, last time I appeared on the show, I mean. Um, previous stocks, I've got Aristocrat, James Hardy, BHP, Macquarie, Western Areas and Iluca. Hopefully I haven't missed any. Um, do I still like them? Yes. So all of them, apart from Western Areas, I've got for my clients. Um, luckily, luckily, all of them are actually higher than, um, than when I mentioned them on your show, Peter. So um, that's they're all heading the right way. So just so you know, I'm still happy with those. And um, I'll add Woodside Petroleum to that list uh, today. That's my recommendation for today. Um, so we could see with the Woodside chart, um, the share price has come back. Uh, over the last few months. Um, and then it's just kicked higher uh, just over the last couple of weeks. So there's renewed interest in, um, in energy stocks. We've seen a bit of a breakout in the price of oil. Uh, and I think that will continue on um, as global demand increases. So to me, Woodside, even at current levels, is still a buy. So we can add that to my little list of recommendations. Um, I think that's going to continue heading high here. And as, as promised, Peter, I'll... Uh, I'll let your viewers know if I've uh, exited any of these for my clients. Thanks, Martin. One thing I, I must pick you up on, uh, Michael, you said luckily. You, you don't get it right through luck, mate. You get it through hard work and his, historical experience. You wouldn't, uh, be, but... <laughs> you wouldn't be here for luck. <laughs> you, don't, you, don't, you don't get them all right, Peter. I've got, I've got some wrong, and it's lucky that I haven't actually mentioned those on your show. So um, touch, touch wood, it's, uh, it's working out at the moment. Okay, mate. Well, one thing we like is honest and analysts. Thanks for coming to the program, man. Thanks, program, Peter. Man. See you in a few weeks' time. Thank you. Become an annual Switzer Report subscriber and get unprecedented access to my seven investing principles where I reveal the exact strategies I use to invest. You'll get access to an exclusive PDF, video recording, and even a free copy of my book, Join the Rich Club. With a 30-day money-back guarantee, a Switzer Report subscription is one of the wisest investments you can make towards your future. Find out more at switzerreport.com.au slash YouTube offer or click on the link in the description below. Joining me now is the Portfolio Manager of the Switzer Dividend Growth Fund, Marcus Bogdan. Marcus, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much, Peter. Good to be here. Now, I should say to the audience that I am always giving other fund managers and other brokers a lot of free publicity. So I thought, why not give my fund a, a bit of publicity as well by introducing the new manager of the fund and, uh, and get an idea of what kind of um, stocks he likes at the moment, which ones are great dividend payers, and also get an understanding of how he picks stocks as well. So Marcus, let's kick off with the key question. What are the three, what I think you think is the most reliable dividend payers in your portfolio? Um, I think if you look at Commonwealth Bank, West Farmers and Woolworths and just the deep history of consistent performance of those companies to deliver both earnings and dividends for shareholders over a, num a number of years would be the, the standouts. Now, they've all done particularly well in terms of share prices more recently but I think that is a justification of how well they've actually executed 
through the pand through the pandemic. Each of them are market leaders, and I think each of them have also increased their competitive advantages uh, in their perspective in industry sets. Uh, Commonwealth Commonwealth Bank. Um, is leading on technology. It is leading on mortgage growth, deposit growth, and has the strongest balance sheet uh, and has a prudent payout ratio of around 65% uh, for, for their dividend. And that should equate to a fully franked dividend of around 4% if we go out to 2023 and, and we're starting to see a recovery there in the banking dividends and I think CBA will lead that charge. And then we certainly like the areas of consumer staples, uh, the consistency of the earnings that they've been able to deliver. Uh, both West Farmers and Woolworths have increased their competitive position over the last 18 months. Uh, they've both initiated uh, and driven an online platform for, bo for, for both Bunnings, Officeworks, and then in Woolworths supermarkets. Uh, that has gained a great deal of traction. Uh, and they're delivering earnings growth. And, um, and when we're looking at good dividend paying companies, looking at underlying earnings and the profile of earnings is particularly important. So I, st I stand, stand out of those three companies. Uh, they're all household names. They've all got deep listed history in the Australian market. Uh, they're number one players in what, in what they do. And they've just been able to deliver consistently over a number of years. Okay, well, the next question is, how do you assess a stock or company that you want to invest in? And let me just throw a little bit onto that question. <clears throat> Considering those great companies you've already mentioned, do you get to a stage where even you aren't prepared to buy them for the fund because maybe the market has overpriced it and therefore you wait for the market maybe to sell off and buy in again at a lower price? Yeah, I mean, valuation is always important and we do want to have a margin of safety in any of the companies that, that, that we, that we look, look at. Um, and if we go back to those three, three companies, yes, they have performed very well recently, but I think there is justification in, in, the, in those premiums. But we've also been looking at what we would say quality laggards, companies that we believe that the underlying business fundamentals are very sound. They've actually delivered earnings and dividend growth, but have lagged uh, the overall, mar overall market. Um, and some of those companies, you know, some, some things like um, Medibank, Suncorp, but the overarching um, thesis for, for the portfolio is looking at those quality franchises, what we would classify as quality at a, re at a reasonable price. And we focus on quality because they are the most dependable dividend paying com companies. Uh, and so that assessment of the earnings quality, the history of earnings, the sorts of returns that they've been able to generate is particularly important. Another incredibly important attribute on the companies that we like to earn is balance sheet strength. 
uh, and both earnings quality and balance sheet strength have a, a, a really testament no, no matter what downturn that you go through, if you've got those two components, you'll generally do much better than the market in times of duress. Uh, and you will have the ability to continue to pay dividends as well. Um, management and management execution is particularly important. Uh, and so we overlay um, that, that lens of quality in terms of management history and, and execution. Uh, and then the final part is obviously the, value, the valuation. Um, quality companies do tend to trade at a premium to the market, uh, and that's for justifiable reasons. It, it is the consistency of, ex, of execution. But we do watch a range of quality companies in the market very, very carefully. Uh, and we're very attentive of picking up those companies that we believe that the underlying businesses are incredibly solid. Uh, they've been underperformers and, and uh, they're the ones that we're sort of really most attracted to. And they're the ones that more of our attention has been paid in, in recent months as the market has uh, moved substantially higher. Yeah. I must admit, even though this is not a dividend stock, I couldn't resist buying CSL when it was down at two, $260 because it's a classic great company that was a lag on at the time. Absolutely. And, uh, and also, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting discussion because, you know, they've got a dividend yield of around 1%. The, ca the cash rate there is at 25 basis points. Uh, so you're still doing better than, than cash. But then you're also seeing a company that is historically, and I think going forward, will be able to grow their earnings by around 8 to 10% per annum. And that will translate into that uplift in dividend also. Okay. Well, last question, mate. What is your latest acquisition for the fund? And what attracted you to that company? Um, so in, in more recent months, uh, we have acquired Amcor again in the, por in the portfolio. Uh, that would definitely be classified as a quality global leader in packaging um, that has delivered very consistent growth, but has lagged the market. And so that was one of the reasons that we were attracted to it. It was one of the, the handful of companies that was able to grow their earnings through the COVID period, because in essence, they were supplying packaging to consumer staples, to the healthcare industries on a, glo on a global basis. They've upgraded their earnings guidance to 14 to 15%, from 10 to 14%. So the, tra the trajectory of earnings uh, is, is, is a powerful thematic. Uh, and they've also consistently paid an attractive dividend. And so their dividend yield is around 4%. Uh, so for us, that, that was a good choice that we felt to, to put into the port portfolio to deliver dependable earnings and an attractive dividend yield for the investors. Okay, one last one, Marcus. Uh, as I was listening to you, I thought it was worthwhile bringing up. You know, you've recently been appointed to, to run my fund. And part of the reason was you, you know, you've, you've had a good track record of, of doing a dividend fund. Um, and for people who are watching this, I want to make it clear that when you go into a, a dividend fund, it's not a term deposit. You can't guarantee your capital stays where it is. 
and your capital will go up and down, but generally it goes on a, a rising trend over time. But what kind of dividend yield have you been able to achieve you know, in the, the time? I think you've been around since about 2014, but correct me if I'm wrong, mm -hmm. but what kind of consistent dividend plus franking have you been able to achieve? Um, well, the, 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 the prima facie dividend has been around 4%, uh, and then there's franking on top of that. Uh, the great bulk of the companies that, that we invest in, you know, if you look at Commonwealth Bank or West Farmers or, or Woolworths, are fully, fully, fully franked. Uh, and it may be worthwhile just touching on the attributes in terms of the, of the dividend characteristics. Um, we do have um, a good bunch of companies that pay higher dividend yields than 4%. You know, the telecommunications spark uh, some of the some of the REITs in the portfolio uh, are yielding uh, north of five five percent, but with very uh, um, uh, lower underlying growth. But then we have a group of companies uh, that are generally growing at a greater rate than the economy, uh, that might be at sort of three or four percent, but are being able to, to translate that into consistently higher dividend growth as, as, as well. And so they're the sorts of that attributes, but the, you know, the blended dividend yield is around 4%, then uh, plus, plus franking credits on top of that as well. Okay, Marcus, thanks for joining us on the program. Thank you very much, Peter. Cheers. I want to talk to you about the Switzer Golden Ticket promotion. Yes, our marketing department has been working over time to come up with something great, and I think this is great. How would you like to win a free one-year subscription to the Switzer Report with all the great stock tips that the report produces on a weekly basis? Well, we are giving you, our loyal audience, the opportunity to do just that. From now until June 30, with every purchase of my book, Join the Rich Club, which is 50% off until the end of the month, you'll enter your chance to find a golden ticket. Yes, a golden ticket, and you will win a free one-year subscription to the Switzer Report. So if you're a current Switzer Report subscriber and you find one of these golden tickets, then we'll just add another 12 months onto your existing subscription for free. How good is that? We've got five of these to give away, so get in and good luck. Joining me now is Simon Presley from Propertyology, and Simon put out a pretty controversial um, article recently where he said, keep the granny and ditch the granny flat. Simon, thanks for joining us on the show. Hi, Peter. Always good to chat property with you. Yeah, I, 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 I'm glad you didn't say ditch the granny, keep the flat. Uh, no, very affectionate. <laughs> we, we all love our grannies, don't we? Without a doubt. But a lot of people have thought, you know, that granny flats are a good idea, but you don't think it is a great idea. So w w talk us through your logic. Well, we're not saying you can't make money by, uh, by buying uh, an investment property that has the granny flat on it. What we are saying is that people need to go into these transactions with their eyes wide open and not just focus on uh, get lured into buying a property with two incomes, which is um, how these properties are pitched to yeah. some people. Um, these, the historical studies that we have done looking at evidence-based performance, um, the rates of capital growth, not saying you won't get any capital growth, but the rates of capital growth for what was probably originally a traditional house and then subsequently had a granny flat built on it, mm. um, those rates of growth won't be anywhere near as 
strong as a conventional house. Uh, are you saying also that, okay, if you're buying these places, you may well be overpaying because you think that the income you're going to get in the future is going to be substantial. But, and that may well be the case. You will get, but when you come to sell it, there's less potential buyers? Some people do pay too much for it because they feel that there's something precious about this property that has the ability to generate two incomes. But the biggest concern is uh, people forget the end game. And, you know, let's, let's face it, investing is a discretionary action. We don't have to do it. Yeah. Those who choose to do it is because we want to be proactive and have a better retirement lifestyle. If we bought a property today, you or I, Peter, we paid, let's say, $500,000 for it, and yours is worth a million dollars in 10 years' time, and mine's worth 700000 clearly you're going to have a much more comfortable retirement lifestyle than myself. So we need to focus on the things that are going to influence that, that end game. And if we own a property that's got what I call a con concrete monstrosity in one corner of the dwelling, then when it comes time to sell, the, the, the line out the front of the open home will not be anywhere near as long with the property that's got the granny flat compared to a, a conventional property. The reason for that is 70% of buyers in any market at any time are the owner-occupier, and they would much prefer that detached house to still have the bigger yard that they can put a swing pool in or they can extend out um, for a bigger family or whatever rather than have this concrete monstrosity there. So, so what you're really talking about is the law of averages because there are specifics where it would work. Like, for example, if, if you bought a, um, a home on a Gold Coast beach that actually had a granny flat at the bat, that could be a very, very um, valuable Airbnb um, granny flat. No grannies, just Airbnb people on a high tourist area where you could, you could arguably charge a lot. Is that, is that a fair argument? Well, but again, there we're talking about the potential income from the asset. Hmm. Still down the track when you, when you went to sell that property, whether it's on the beach or anywhere, Peter, um, that's not going to appeal to an owner-occupier. Yeah. And that's always going to be 70% of the potential buyers of real estate. Yeah. So um, whether it's a property, whether it's a, you know, with a granny flat or any other type of um, residential real estate property, um, the best potential for capital growth is always an asset that appeals to the broadest possible yeah. market. And owner-occupiers um, are 70% of, of buyers. Now, you may well be biased by your age. Now, I'm just guessing what your age <laughs> is. But if you've got, say, an 18 or 19-year-old son who you'd love to dump in a granny flat out the back so he no longer terrorises the household, that could be appealing. But I would argue there's still a small number of people who want that kind of satisfaction in what they're buying. A small number, yes. I'm not saying there'll be no owner-occupiers yeah. that want to buy a property with a granny flat. Yeah. It could be a mature couple that rather than uh, sending mum into an aged care facility, you know, they want to put her there. Or it could be someone with a home office. I'm yeah. not saying there won't be any buyers, yeah. but it will always be a very, very small percentage of buyers. And, um, and, and our statement is supported by formal studies that we've done. So yeah. we've looked at properties um, that were, you know, bought, say, 10 years ago, um, sold today with a granny flat on them and then getting another stock standard, you know, vanilla property without that granny flat on it, owned for the same period of time in the same market, yeah. done that multiple times so we've got a big enough body of evidence yeah. uh, and the gap between the rates of capital growth is significant. Yeah, it is interesting. While we're on that sort of subject, you know, you, you threw in the, the 
the point that some people might like to um, have a swimming pool in the backyard, but a granny flat's in the way. A lot of real estate agents tell me that you know, swimming pools aren't all that valuable for properties, but I always notice that on their signboards, they actually show the swimming pool. What's your analysis on the value of a swimming pool in making a house you know, sell more readily or not? Yeah, I don't know that it, it makes it sell uh, any more readily. Um, it's a very subjective thing. Some people love a home with a swimming pool, some people don't. Um, some people would rather, if they want to go for a swim, go somewhere else where the, where the maintenance is, is, the, is their problem. Um, so I don't think it really adds to a value. But what I'm talking about with the granny flat scenario is if you, as soon as you put that concrete monstrosity there, you remove flexibility. You remove the number of different ways that that property could be used whether that's putting in a swimming pool for a future buyer or something like something else, mm. um, you, you take away that flexibility. So therefore the appeal for the biggest possible segment of buyers is diminished. Yeah, and I guess the bottom line also is that you, know, you have to um, add that to your capital base when you Absolutely. ultimately look at your, your return on investment. And uh, for some people, they might, it might work as a social thing. Like, and, and I, I know cases where the, the granny has actually left the main house and gone into the granny flat to allow her younger family to take over the, the house. But yeah, you, you're right, it, it can lead to a, a less impressive re return on investment. Yeah, and it's, it's too late after you purchased it. You know, we're not talking about an outfit that the day after we buy it, we can go back to the retailer and say, can I please have my money back here? So, so the purpose of our report is to create awareness um, for people who might be pursuing investing at some stage in the near future and they come across the concept of geez one asset two incomes mm. how you know how clever am i right. you need to think through um all this there's a, yeah. there's enough evidence out there now uh, to show that the capital growth potential has been diminished by that secondary income yeah. source ha have you seen a an upshot uh in investors turning up to open houses and auctions and secondly are these investors somewhat sometimes at all people who want two income returns on a property? Uh, first question about investor activity, it certainly has increased and it's been a long time coming. Uh, mm. The last uh, four or five years right throughout Australia, Peter, the, the volume of investor activity has been well, well short of, uh, of what's required. And, uh, uh, and that's why with the exception of Sydney and Melbourne at the moment, we've got a rental crisis right throughout Australia because we have had insufficient investor activity. So it has picked up in the last three to four months and we expect that trend to continue. Um, what was the second question? Are we seeing at this point in time, Simon, a rebound in investors turning up to open houses and auctions? Yes, fortunately we are, Peter. It's been a long time coming in this country. Uh, the volume of investor activity in the last four to five years has been well short of what Australia requires. And therefore, with the exception of Sydney and Melbourne at the moment, um, right across Australia, we have an, an all-time record high rental crisis. People living in cars and tents because there's insufficient rental uh, properties. Mm. Um, and that's a byproduct of investor activity. So the last three to four months, we have seen an increase in investor activity and we, and we need this run to, to continue for sure. Okay. Now, on that subject then, um, are you seeing evidence that some investors are going after the double income uh, properties because it effectively, in some cases, even turns their, um, their property into a positively geared operation? 
Yeah, um, there's always some investors uh, that fall for that trap, and I do call it a trap because I think they're not thinking through the, the the primary purpose of why they're choosing to invest and what their longer-term goal is. Or maybe for some other investors, um, they've already got tight cash flow. So they might be asset-rich, cash-poor. Mm. They've got equity there to invest again. They want to do that, but maybe the existing investment properties are already sucking a lot of money out of the household budget, so they're trying to compensate for that by buying the next investment property that has a much better cash flow. Often the cause of the much better cash flow of a, of a chosen investment property is usually um, what diminishes its capital growth potential. So, so people need to understand what creates growth um, and get that balanced decision. Great stuff. Thanks for joining us, mate. And uh, gee, I'm, I'm glad you haven't got a, um, an anti-granny stance. It's just an anti-granny flat stance. <laughs> love, love grannies. <laughs> All right, mate. Thanks for joining us. Good on you, mate. Bye-bye. Joining me now is the portfolio manager at Coolabar Capital and my Switzer higher yield fund, Ying Yi An Cheng. And she's a portfolio manager, and it's great to see you, Ying Yi. Thanks, Peter. All right, so we always have a chat about where interest rates are going. We've seen this week the Reserve Bank basically you know, sticking to its story that they don't think interest rates will rise to 2024. Along today, uh, today, or sorry, on Wednesday came the economic growth number, and the March quarter came in at 1.8%, bigger than was initially expected. I think 1.1% was a kind of guess some time ago. It looks like we're annualised at 7.2%. Do you think this might eventually force the Reserve Bank to move early on interest rates? Well, firstly, I mean, the, the key thing is whether the question of whether they will taper because in terms of moving interest rates, they're currently enjoying uh, quantitative easing at the moment, which includes the purchase of government bonds. Um, to, so they're essentially purchasing the debt issued by the state governments and the Commonwealth government. So before they would be actually lifting interest rates, they would need to unwind um, other policy stimulus that they have going on at the moment. Um, at the moment, we have the term funding facility, which is due to end at the end of this month, so June. Uh, meanwhile, as I said, they're already doing um, quantitative easing, that's purchasing the debt of the Commonwealth government and also the state governments as well. So before they look to lift interest rates, they would probably wind back on that. And so when that term funding facility, and just by the way, um, for your audience, the term funding facility currently allows the banks to borrow off the RBA at 0.1%. Uh, and that is not being extended, yeah. uh, which you know the banks are awash with liquidity. Deposit growth is still very, very strong. Uh, and so by not extending that term funding facility, uh, the RBA is actually de facto tapering, um, which means that it's not you know creating that sort of same degree of easing which it was doing beforehand. Um, and if anything, our expectation is that the RBA will also continue to do QE um, as and when. And, you know, we think that they continue with, you know, rounds of QE as long as, you know, the, uh, the economy uh, requires it, which is our base case. Mm. So um, in terms of interest rate hikes, I think that will be sometime 
away. Um, but in terms of tapering on quantitative easing, that could come in a couple of years' time. Yeah. You know, it could come in the next year, but it very much depends on, as you say, economic growth and other indicators. The key for the RBA, um, as we've spoken about in the past, it really all comes down to inflation and unemployment. So some of the things that we need in order to create inflation, for example, because inflation is um, not very high, other than the fact that we've had some rebasing effects, um, you know, coming out of COVID. In order to generate core inflation, uh, we really need also uh, wage inflation. And that's been quite anemic, as you know, it's still surfer around, you know, under one and a half percent. In order to get it um, back up, we need unemployment to fall. And we need unemployment to get back down to towards, you know, probably around below 4%. So somewhere around three and a half to 4%. Um, and so, you know, that's its objective. And until then, I think we will continue to see stimulus via quantitative easing, i.e. government bond purchases from the RBA. Okay, so the, the summary is until probably the, the central bank is so worried about the strength of the economy that they start pulling QE, you're not going to start worrying about rising interest rates. Is that a fair No, point? that's right. And if anything, look, rising interest rates, I think we're, we are about to see, and I think we've already seen it to a certain extent, um, this de facto tightening or lift in interest rates already from the banks not being able to access the term funding facility mm. at 0.1% after June. So, you know, up until now, uh, well, up until the end of this month, the banks can borrow off the RBA at 0.1% and then they can, you know, provide mortgages, for example, yeah. to um, households or businesses um, in terms of business lending. When they stop borrowing off the RBA at 0.1%, they're going to be forced to you know, fund at wholesale levels. And trust me, that will not be at 0.1%. Yeah. That will be you know, higher than that. So therefore, when they borrow at higher rates in the wholesale funding market, they have to pass on that higher cost of borrowing when they lend out to households and businesses. Okay. Now, because you hang out with a, a bunch of fun, entertaining guys and girls, you know, who love the, the exciting area called the bond market. And of course, you work with the most exciting person in the country, Christopher Joy. One of your debates must be around, will the inflation that's coming through be temporary or transitory, or could it be here longer than the experts uh, are, are predicting? Now, when you guys, I'm sure you've had a debate on this, uh, you know, around the the lunchroom table or whatever. What are you guys saying about this? Do you believe that inflation is going to be temporary? And how long will temporary be? And be right too. Okay, well, I mean, look, I think inflation is definitely a concern down the track. And, you know, as we've seen from how concerned central banks, especially people like the ECB, so the European Central Bank, are obsessed with inflation. And that's because when inflation does come, it tends to be quite sticky and could potentially be an issue. But at the moment, we're not even at that two to 3% mark. Yeah. 
you know, um, target. Um, so when we get there, then yes, we expect inflation to hang about and inflation could be a massive issue down the track. But right now we're not there yet. So I think inflation is going to be potentially uh, an issue probably in the next, you know, three to 10 years. Um, but right now we need to get to that point. And I think the central bank is much more willing, you know, given that we've undershot inflation for so long, they're willing to tolerate overshoots yeah. in inflation. But you're saying, are you saying to us that the sustainable inflation, sustained inflation is probably three or t 10 years down the track, but we might see a spike in inflation temporarily because of the getting back to normal effect. And I, I used an example recently. I said, well, six months ago, if you could buy an airline ticket to New Zealand, it was cheap as chips. But now if you try and do it, because you can go to New Zealand, apart from Victorians, um, it's expensive because everyone wants to get it. So airlines will push the prices up. This is the, the normalisation process. But after six more months, when everyone's flying again, hopefully, well, the prices will start to stabilise and price competition will come in and the inflation rate will fall. Is that a fair call? Yeah, so look, uh, yeah, so you're talking about rebasing effects. Yeah, definitely. But no, one, hang on. no one knows what you're talking about when you say rebasing. <laughs> Only you and your Yeah, and your re respect. rebasing just means like, like, that the economy normalises. Yes, there will be temporary sort of shocks. I mean, we saw this in um, when we spoke last time. There was, in the US, there was quite, you know, substantial numbers because they were looking at used cars, for example, yeah. or want to um but again like you know having gone through that sort of a, a peak um you won't people aren't going to be buying multiple used cars on an ongoing basis yeah. so we won't see that my reference to inflation being an issue in the three to ten years mm. is actually um more around the concern that because we're pumping so much stimulus and money into the system people are going out and borrowing and purchasing. Um, so I think it's going to be a potentially, yeah, a, a cyclical problem down the track where it could affect, you know, growth negatively um, in three to 10 years time, but not right now. All right, so let's, let's imagine the early phases of inflation, maybe in two or three years time. Mm. How's that gonna affect your fund? Positively or negatively? Yeah, good question. Well, I mean, it will be neutral. So if anything, there's arguably a, a positive effect because the fund that we do run, the Switzer High Yield Fund, um, you know, which is one fund amongst our, our other portfolios at Coolabar, but the Switzer High Yield Fund is 100% floating. So there's no fixed rate risk in the portfolio. So imagine if you were fixed rate, which we're not. Imagine having fixed your rate, say, at 1%. Let's say interest rates move higher, you miss out on that move higher. You're not getting paid if uh, interest rates are now at one half or 2% or stuck at 1% in terms of your income yep. or the yield that you're generating as a bond investor, right? When you are a floating rate investor or you're invested in a floating rate fund, as interest rates move higher or that floating rate moves higher, you benefit from that because if rates suddenly move from one to one and a half, you will get that one and a half percent yield because you're floating rate. Yeah. Okay. And which the sweets a higher yield fund would be. And then our objective on top of that is to deliver, you know, alpha or capital gains over the top of that. 
Okay, Ying Yi, as always, great to catch up. But you must promise us, when, when you and Chris start to worry, you'll get on the blower and we'll interview you straight away. You will definitely hear from us. <laughs> Thanks very much. And that's the show for this week. Thanks for joining us. And before I go, let me remind you, our small cap conference is on next Tuesday. Um, go to our website to see how you can join in to see that program. And if, if you want more information about the kind of stocks that we've mentioned on the show tonight, go to switzerreport.com.au. Thanks for joining us again. See you next week.